This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. So, you know, one of the um, instructive things uh, about Susan Orlean and her life story is how she became a writer, which was, you might say, uh, by plugging away at it for a number of years after college. And that's instructive because it goes against the rather uh, idealized but all too, too common notion that people become writers suddenly and success often just immediately happens. In Susan's case, she studied literature and history in college and, as she recounts in an uh, autobiographical note, dreamed of being a writer, the kind who produced long stories about interesting things rather than news stories about passing events. But she had no idea how one went about becoming a writer. Uh, then uh, one thing led to another, starting with a couple of writing jobs with publications in Portland, Oregon, uh, some pieces for Rolling Stone and the, and the Village Voice, and then a move to Boston and reporting stints with the Boston Phoenix and the Boston Globe, plus some contributions to the New Yorker. Then a move to New York and a staff position uh, with The New Yorker beginning in 1992, and she's been with the magazine ever since. Susan's pieces have covered a wide range of topics, though she has shown a certain fondness for animal stories. Uh, along the way, she's earned a reputation as a very gifted reporter and writer with a sharp eye for detail, an ability to pull seemingly disparate threads together, uh, and a contagious sympathy for her subjects. Uh, these same talents have been on display also in her books, which have included Saturday Night, her first book in 1990, which documents the experience of Saturday Night in about two dozen communities across the country, The Orchid Thief in 1998 about an eccentric plant dealer named John LaRoche and the odd passionate world of orchid fanatics, uh, and Rin Tin Tin in 2011 about that I iconic German Shepherd who became an American entertainment star. Her latest work, the library book, uh, is her, is her um, eighth book and chronicles the life and times and the near-death experience of the Los Angeles Public Library, which suffered a devastating fire in 1986. The book is at once an extensively researched mystery, a cultural history, and a love letter to reading. In it, Susan not only profiles the library's staff and patrons, she tells the broader history of libraries and expounds on the value to humanity of these public places. The reviews of this book have been, well, beyond enthusiastic, more like enraptured. Uh, Ron Charles of the Washington Post, for example, declared the library book a great gift to give or get, hint, you know, uh, for the upcoming uh, holidays. And Ron said, reading it, you can't, quote, feel grateful uh, that uh, you can't help but feel grateful that these marvelous places belong to us. So, ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Susan Orlean. Thank you so much. Um, is this on? You can hear me. Okay, good. Um, I'm so happy to be here. I'm absolutely thrilled to be talking about this book and to be here tonight and to be at this bookstore, which is a treasure. I'm 
going to, I feel so short standing at this podium. Um, I'm going to start by reading a, a short section from the beginning of the book. And what I'm going to do is tell you a little bit about how I came to write the book and why it spoke to me so deeply and read just a couple of short sections. And then of course we'll have time for questions. I grew up in libraries, or at least it feels that way. I was raised in the suburbs of Cleveland, just a few blocks from the brick-faced Bertram Woods branch of the Shaker Heights public library system. Throughout my childhood, starting when I was very young, I went there several times a week with my mother. <clears throat> On those visits, my mother and I walked in together. But as soon as we passed through the door, we split up and each headed to our favorite section. The library might have been the first place I was ever given autonomy. Even when I was maybe four or five years old, I was allowed to head off on my own. Then after a while, my mother and I reunited at the checkout counter with our finds. Together we waited as the librarian at the counter pulled out the date card and stamped it with the checkout machine, that giant fist thumping the card with a loud chunk chunk printing a crooked due date underneath a score of previous crooked due dates that belonged to other people, other times. Our visits to the library were never long enough for me. The place was so bountiful. I loved wandering around the bookshelves, scanning the spines until something happened to catch my eye. Those visits were dreamy, frictionless interludes that promised I would leave richer than I had arrived. It wasn't like going to a store with my mom, which guaranteed a tug of war between what I wanted and what my mother was willing to buy me. In the library, I could have anything I wanted. After we checked out, I loved being in the car and having all the books we'd gotten stacked on my lap, pressing me under their solid warm weight, their mylar covers sticking a bit to my thighs. It was such a thrill leaving a place with things you hadn't paid for. Such a thrill anticipating the new books we would read. On the ride home, my mom and I talked about the order in which we were going to read our books and how long until they had to be returned. A solemn conversation in which we decided how to pace ourselves through this charmed, excuse me, period of grace until the books were due. We both thought all of the librarians at the Bertram Woods Branch Library were beautiful. For a few minutes, we would discuss their beauty. My mother then always mentioned that if she could have chosen any profession at all, she would have chosen to be a librarian. And the car would grow silent for a moment as we both considered what an amazing thing that would have been. When I was older, I usually walked to the library myself, lugging back as many books as I could carry. Occasionally, I did go with my mother, and the trip would be as enchanted as it was when I was small. Even when I was in my last year of high school and could drive myself to the library, my mother and I still went together now and then, and the trip unfolded exactly as it did when I was a child, with all the same beats and pauses and comments and reveries, the same perfect pensive rhythm we followed so many times before. When I miss my mother these days, now that she is gone, 
I like to picture us in the car together, going for one more magnificent trip to Bertram Woods. Thank you. So how did I end up writing a book about libraries? I certainly did not expect that to be the case. So let me tell you a little bit about the journey to it, because it was a somewhat unexpected. I, of course, grew up loving libraries, and then I became a lover of buying books and was really filling my house with books I purchased rather than using the library. And then, like a lot of people, I had a child, and suddenly I was in a position of taking my kid to the library. I had just moved to Los Angeles, and we were there maybe only a couple of weeks at the point this happened. My son was given a school assignment. He was in first grade. To, he was told to go and talk to somebody who worked for the city. So I suggested that he speak to a garbage collector. And he suggested that he speak to a librarian, which is a very odd, you would have expected it the other way around. But nevertheless, I thought, great, well, let's look up where the nearest branch library is. Because as I said, we had just moved there. As we drove to the branch library, it was about the same distance as the library that I went to all the time as a kid. We parked and we walked in and there was something about being in that place that was like being shot out of a rocket backward in time. Everything about the library felt just like the library that I'd grown up going to. And it was such a powerful feeling. I went to lots of places with my parents, with my, mother, my mom. But this felt so profound. So it registered in my head, why are libraries so evocative? What about them feels so personal and so emotional? And I, I didn't think it was unique to that one experience. Being in there, feeling filled with that emotion of what a library feels like really struck me as unique. So it started kicking around in my head. It's kind of irresistible if you're a journalist. You start thinking, hmm, I wonder if that could be a book. <laughs> but at the time... I thought, well, that's just sort of a general feeling about, boy, libraries are cool places. S a few months later, I was invited to um, have a tour of the downtown uh, Los Angeles Library branch, which is the central branch. And I was very surprised because I didn't know L.A. had a downtown. And then I thought, well, sure, let's go see what this is all about. And I had done some, some fundraiser for the library, so this was being offered to me. It's an amazing building. So right off the bat, I, I was sort of in love with the place. As I walked through and was being given this tour, it really felt to me like the whole place was alive. It was just alive with stories. It, it wasn't just 
the books on the shelves. It was the story of the architect. It was the story of all the people who have passed through. It was the story of all the librarians over time that had worked there. And again, I had that feeling of, this is an amazing story, but there was no narrative drive that immediately made it feel like it could be a book. As we were in the fiction section, the gentleman giving me the tour suddenly pulled a book off the shelf and he took a deep, deep whiff and inhaled the book. And I thought, well, it's maybe an L.A. thing. (laughs) And I, I just sort of smiled and he said, you know, you can smell the smoke in some of them. And I said did they used to let people smoke in the library? And he said, no, no, the smoke from the fire. I said, what fire? And he said, the big fire, the fire in 1986 that closed the library for seven years. And then he moved on and I was saying, wait, stop. What are you talking about? And I was absolutely riveted. And immediately I felt... It it connected with that feeling because the idea of a library burning was so disturbing to me that I instantly thought, I have to write this book. I have to write about this. And also, if this was such a big fire, why didn't I ever hear about it? And that really fascinated me because it was the largest library fire in the history of the United States. Just to give you a few statistics, what I learned was, as I said, largest library fire in the history of the U.S. Until very recently, it was the largest structure fire in the history of Los Angeles. It burned for seven and a half hours. The temperature rose over 2,500 degrees. And when it was done, 400,000 books were completely destroyed. 700,000 were damaged. And it was an astonishing fact. And it, it, besides wanting to learn about this story, it also was a very evocative image of a library burning because we've been burning libraries since we've been building libraries. And it's never a casual result. In fact... There's a a statement from a a German philosopher where they burn libraries, they next burn men. And that has been proven true over the course of history. There's, There's hardly a government that has made a point of burning books that then didn't also destroy people. And that resonated again with this idea that our relationship to books and to libraries is something different than our relationship to other objects. A book is an object, but it's also got the spirit of humanity in it. It's not merely paper and ink. We relate to books as something that has a a human spark in it. And I think that's why burning books is so taboo is such a horrible act that it feels like the statement is we're burning your memories, we're burning your culture, we're destroying you. 
I'm not sure there's, certainly art would have that effect, but books filled with our thoughts, our knowledge, our history, our culture, our dreams, those feel so intimately connected to us. In the course of working on the book, I came across an expression that really, really finally told me what this book was about. In Senegal, there's an expression when someone dies, instead of saying they died, you say his or her library has burned. And to me, that explains what I was feeling, that there is a parallel between us and our books and our books and our libraries. And in a sense, a library represents a communal brain. And we as individuals have in our memories the essence of our own library, each memory, each piece of knowledge we have, each emotion, each story of who we are is almost like a volume in our minds. And, and that expression to me really resonated that the terrible devastation of, of loss that losing a library represents. So in the course of working on the book, I kind of embedded myself in the library for far more time than I thought I would. Um, I worked on the book for about six years and because I wasn't only trying to look into the history of the fire, which was an arson fire, and there was a whole criminal investigation as a result. But I also wanted to know, what's the day-to-day life of a, a big city library? I mean, they're open to everyone. What flows through a library is basically everyone and everything, and each person with their own agenda of why they're there. In fact, one of my favorite things was to sit up at the circulation desk and see what people were checking out. Because so often it was something where you'd think, I can't believe someone wrote that book. And then my next thought would always be, I can't believe someone's checking that book out. (laughs) On the other hand, it was also very comforting to think some really odd, weird, particular book had someone somewhere out there who would love it. It was almost like, you know, those misconnection ads that they used to have in the back of the village voice. So it was like, you know, man writes book about super weird subject and it's reader seeking book on super weird subject and they meet. But one of the other things that I loved about the library is that they are the places we turn to answer questions. And certainly that has changed somewhat as the growth of Google and search engines has made it easy to, you know, type in who won the world series in, you know, 1935. Although believe it or not, a lot of times people will call the library even now and ask a question that it would have taken them less time to Google. But in the course of working on the book, I had that experience that every writer dreams of, which is, you want some at some point for someone to say, oh, you're doing, oh, let me, th- I think there were some boxes in the back with some stuff. And you just go, oh, great. And in this case, 
someone, one of the librarians said to me, you know, I think in the rare book room, there might be in a corner some boxes. Well, there were 68 boxes of archival material that librarians had collected about the library, about the life of the library. And it was just fantastic. So I want to read a few things to you that um, I loved because they kept logs of the questions people would call with. I mean, and they were amazing. The things that people ask, just fabulous. So these are uh, a few of the entries of the log from the 1960s. Um, and the reference desk, the call-in desk at the library was called the Southern California Answering Network. And they were very, very, very busy. And part of it, it was because they were busy all day. And then as soon as the libraries on the East Coast closed, everyone on the East Coast would start calling the Los Angeles Public Library to answer their questions. So they were very busy in the afternoon when things were shutting down over here. And by the way, after a while, they changed the name from the Southern California Answering Network to Hoot Owl. So these are a few of the questions that um, were called in in the 1960s. Patron call. Wanted to know how to say the necktie is in the bathtub in Swedish. <laughs> he was writing a script. Patron called asking for a book on liver disorders for her husband, who is a heavy drinker. Patron wants to know origin of the expression bear coughed at the North Pole, unable to provide answer. Patron call asking whether it is necessary to rise if national anthem is played on radio or television. Explain that one need only do what is natural and unforced. For instance, one does not rise while bathing, eating, or playing cards. Patron is a writer in Hebrew, wanted to create a pun between the word for Zion and the word for penis. We couldn't find a term for penis, but the word copulate in Hebrew is metzion, which helped her make a pun with Zion. Thank God the library exists to answer those questions. Patron inquiring whether... Perry Mason's secretary, Della Street, is named after a street, and or whether there is a real street named Della Street. And finally, my favorite, patron asks for help writing inscription for Father's Tombstone. So you can get anything you want in the library. The young man who was accused of the arson was in many ways a, a kind of iconic sort of Californian figure. He had grown up in one of these towns east of L.A. that had cropped up in the 1950s when these subdivisions were being assembled and basically dropped by airlift into the desert, creating these, this vast spread of quasi-urban life filled with people who worked for places like McDonnell Douglas and Lockheed. 
He was a dreamer. He was good looking. He was charming. So he believed that he would become a movie star. And he moved to Los Angeles with that hope. And I used to say he moved to Los Angeles hoping to be an actor. And then I realized I don't think he really wanted to be an actor. I think he wanted to be a movie star. He was drawn to this imaginary life of glamour and ease where everything was just larger than life. One of his characteristic qualities was he was a terrible liar. Everyone who knew him believed nothing he said. He'd fib about anything and everything. And as much as I've grown to love Los Angeles, I also think it's one of those great analogs of the city itself. It's a city of invented stories and a city of invented scenarios. And he was a person who invented everything about who he was and what his life was all about. He was the kind of guy who, if you'd say to him, who'd you have lunch with? He would say, share. And he claimed that Burt Reynolds was a good friend. He believed that he was on the brink of breaking into Hollywood. His family believed it. They all thought he had all sorts of parts just about to come through for him. So the journey of the legal prosecution, which I won't, I won't give it away if um, just because part of what was interesting in the book for me was pursuing this of trying to figure out, all right, if it was an arson, who did it? Why did they do it? And what happened? Because it, it just felt like this was such a big event. Why, why don't I know the outcome? And just to back up a little bit, one of the reasons I was so drawn to the story was being puzzled by why I had never heard of it. And I was living in New York at the time, but I really felt sure that the New York Times, which is the center of the publishing industry, would have certainly covered a story about the biggest library fire in the United States history. So I was baffled by it. And I immediately went to look at the New York Times from that day because I, I, I just was so curious about why this event had somehow escaped my notice. So I looked up the New York Times and there on the, the day of the fire was a banner headline saying, Soviets deny meltdown at Chernobyl nuclear reactor. So this fire occurred on the same day that Chernobyl occurred. <clears throat> Excuse me. And as a result, this story was submerged under this onslaught of news about Chernobyl, a fire of, of a very different sort. So it explained to me how this had vanished. So much of what I learned also was the history of Los Angeles and the incredible figures who ended up running the library. Maybe this is particular to Los Angeles, but the people who ran the library were really odd. <laughs> and I think that's very much in keeping with the spirit of, of California, that 
there were eccentrics and madmen and people who were extremely progressive and forward thinking and flawed in their own way. And learning their history was absolutely fascinating to me. I, I also went, uh, made an eff effort to learn about the history of the burning of libraries. And as I said, this has been used as a tool of terror since time began. One thing that I never knew, by the way, and it's just a, a fact that fascinated me, was that Mao, who was an incredibly oppressive and repressive leader and who burned many, many books, started his career as a young man as a librarian. I thought it was amazing. And in fact, working in the library was where he first came across the works of Karl Marx and had his political awakening. I just want to read a short section because it was so incredible to me, the number of books that have been burned in the course of history. It's hard to believe there are any books left in the world. And some were, were burned accidentally. You know, libraries are often in a city center and the city center would be bombed in a war and the library would burn. But many of them were burned intentionally. The Nazis, uh, according to George Orwell, their, their, their characteristic behavior was burning libraries. And they had a special commando group called the Bren Commandos who were given the task of nothing but finding and burning libraries down. This is amazing. Um, and shortly after Hitler took power, he... Uh, what whether he was independently involved in this or whether it was just rose out of the Nazi perspective. Um, and it was really Joseph Goebbels who organized these events called, I forgive my German, but Feuerspruche, which were gatherings where people would bring books primarily by Jewish or communist authors, declare what they were charged with being in some way decadent or wrong-minded, throw them into a giant pile, and then these were set on fire. And these were cause for much celebration. There was music and dancing. And one really horrible thing that I learned, because I always thought, well, these would have been soldiers maybe, or somebody in the Nazi party who was doing this, declaring the works of Sigmund Freud to be decadent and, and burning them. But these Feuerspruckes were primarily run by the German Student Union, and it was students who were doing it, which I found even more horrible. I just want to read this very, very short section here. The grinding destruction of the war crushed the libraries of Europe, and this is World War II. Some were merely unlucky and got caught in firebombings and aerial attacks meant for more strategic targets. But the German army singled out books for destruction. Special book-burning squads known as Bren Commandos were set out to burn libraries and synagogues. The squads were effective enumerating the losses of libraries in the war, both incidental and purposeful, is dizzying. 
20 major libraries containing 2 million books were destroyed in Italy. France lost millions more, including 300,000 in Strasbourg, 42,000 in Beauvais, 23,000 in Chartres, and 110,000 in Douai. The Library of the National Assembly in Paris burned down, taking with it countless historical arts and science books. In Metz, officials hid the library's most valuable books in an unmarked warehouse for safekeeping. But a German soldier found the warehouse and threw an incendiary device into it. Most of the books, including rare 11th and 13th century manuscripts, were destroyed. During the Blitz, 20 million books in Great Britain burned or were wrecked by the water used to extinguish their fires. The Central Lending Library in Liverpool was completely ruined. The rest of the city's libraries stayed open throughout the Blitz, maintaining regular hours and levying the usual overdue fines. Um, I don't want to run out of time for questions, but um, I just want to tell you one more aspect of the book that was very meaningful to me, which was, as I began the book, I went to my mom and said, you know, I'm going to do a book about the Los Angeles library and about libraries in general. And she said, oh, like every mother, oh, I think I'm the one who first got you interested in libraries. I think that's my doing. And I said, yeah, mom, actually it is. It, it really was her doing. And writing the book was a way for me to really capture those memories of our time spent going to the library because they were really such wonderful moments in my childhood. And then sad, the sad irony was that shortly after I began, began the book, my mother was diagnosed with dementia. And so as I was writing the book, her library was burning down. And it was very clear to me that <clears throat> she no longer remembered our trips to our, the library and eventually whether she even remembered me. So writing the book was tracking this quality of memory that is both internal and personal and social and done through these amazing institutions of our libraries. Do I have time to read one more quick passage? Okay, I'm just going to read one more short passage, and then we'll take questions. I went to the library late one day, just before closing time, when the light outside was already dusky, and the place was sleepy and slow. Central Library is so big that when the crowds thin out, the library can feel very private, almost like a secret place. <clears throat> and the space is so enveloping that you have no sense of the world outside. I went down to the history department, and then I roamed from department to department, just strolling through and crossed the beautiful hollow rotunda, a gorgeous surprise every time I entered it, and then went up the wide lap of the back staircase where the Statue of Civilization stared at me as I made my way. The silence was more soothing than somber. A library is a good place to soften solitude, 
a place where you feel part of a conversation that has gone on for hundreds and hundreds of years, even when you're all alone. The library is a whispering post. You don't need to take a book off a shelf to know there is a voice inside that is waiting to speak to you. And behind that was someone who truly believed that if he or she spoke, someone would listen. It was that affirmation that always thrilled me. Even the oddest, most particular book was written with that kind of courage, the writer's belief that someone would find his or her book important to read. I was struck by how precious and foolish and brave that belief is, and how necessary, and how full of hope it is to collect these books and preserve them. It declares that all these stories matter, and so does every effort to create something that connects us to one another, and to our past, and to what is still to come. I realized that this entire time, I had been convincing myself that my hope to tell a long-lasting story, to create something that endured, to be alive somehow as long as someone would read my books, was what drove me on story after story. It was my lifeline, my passion, my way to understand who I was. I thought about my mother, who died when I was halfway done with this book, and I knew how pleased she would have been to see me in the library, and I was able to use that thought to transport myself for a split second to a time when I was young, and she was in the moment, alert and tender, with years ahead of her and she was beaming at me as I toddled to the checkout counter with an armload of books. I knew that if we had come here together to this enchanted place of stucco and statuary and all the stories in the world for us to have, she would have reminded me just about now that if she could have chosen any profession in the world, she would have been a librarian. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you so much. Um, and we have time for questions. And I think if you don't mind using the mics, that'll be great. And don't be shy. Um, I love questions. As long as they're questions and not statements. Past statement, past question. Um, I always have to say I'm not from the United States. I'm from the Caribbean. But I spent a significant amount of time in LA. And of all the places in the United States, it's really LA I like the most. It, mm -hmm. it, it simply reminds me the most of the Caribbean, the midst, the, you know, et cetera. So, so a few questions. And this is, I, I think, a central question that we're facing now. And I wonder if you thought about it while doing the book. Um, libraries are more and more moving to become like community centers, right? With this hyper-individualization, the optimization of people to break up, you know, with all the social media, et cetera, et cetera. Do you see um, increasingly in the United States that is transitioning, right, from a majority minority from a majority population to a minority population, majority minority population? Do you see libraries more and more stepping up and playing that type of role, right, to bring this very changing and at this point in time very vexing, right, a very vexed problems that yes. we're having now together? And do you see them also trying to 
figure out, you know, how they can tap into the different oh, oral and literary backgrounds and bring the, bring them together with the majority population uh, all over the United States. Thank Absolutely. You. And thank you for the question. I think that it's um, what libraries are trying to do is pretty heroic. They are trying to address almost all, as you say, vexing issues that exist in society, issues of homelessness, of diversity, new immigrants, they and they have really responded. Are they doing it perfectly? No, because I don't think there's perfectly can't happen. But they have really turned their efforts to reimagining themselves as community centers and hubs for knowledge in a way that can move forward into the future in which books may be increasingly less physical, but also to, to take advantage of the fact that they're one of the few places that is open to everyone and that can attract people of every sort. You know, they do it on slim budgets. And if you ask a lot of librarians, they're working now not just as librarians, but as social workers, as um, immigrant consultants, as they're doing this and they're doing it not with being paid extra for the additional work they do. I think it's really impressive what they've done and, and the seriousness with which they take their mission of serving everyone. That's not easy. And there aren't very many other places in our society that is willing to say we serve everyone and we'll figure out how to make it work. Next question. Is there a Carnegie library that is a pub a public place anywhere in this country? Do you know? Oh yes. Yes, yes, yes. Many. Um, Many of them are still, well, first of all, they were all public, always. And Carnegie made it a condition of funding the library that he would only pay for the physical building and he would only do it if the communities agreed to support the library through public funding. So they were all public and many of his libraries, I mean, L.A. has several that are still in operation as branch libraries. I don't know if Washington does, but certainly in Pennsylvania. Oh, well, you know, one of the things is these were built at a time, you know, they're not easy to retrofit for the way people need libraries to work now. And something as simple as the fact that many of them had stairs up that are not easy to navigate and so forth. And they're small. They're very, they tend to be quite small, but there are many of them that are still operating and it, it's a lot of fun to visit them. In the state of New York? 85 Carnegie libraries in the city of New York. This isn't my expertise, as you probably can tell, <laughs> but um, that's really interesting. Yeah. And, you know, Andrew Carnegie, just as an aside, by funding all these libraries, even what happened was it's a little like these cities competing for Amazon to put their headquarters. What happened was 
everybody began competing for a Carnegie library. And when they didn't get it, they went ahead and built libraries anyway. And that was the moment when the number of libraries in the United States exploded. And one, while I'm on a roll here, one outcome of that was suddenly they found themselves very short of staff and librarians had been up until that point primarily men. And in this shortage of staff, suddenly they began allowing women into the profession and therein lies a tale. Um, <clears throat> you alluded to this in, your, in what you had to say, but I wondered if you had more to offer. The Carnegie Libraries, for instance, um, often enshrined books. Right. In the sense that um, regardless of their size, they often had a great, what I would refer to as a great room that might have contained books, but also was a reading room. Um, do you see this as continuing in libraries today or are they more warehouses for books and services? Well, you know, I I haven't seen that many new libraries, newly designed libraries. You know, when you um, the LA Library was built in the 1920s, and it after the fire, um, in the course of repairing the building, they added a very large extension that was in keeping with the original library. Um, I went to Denmark and I saw a library that's touted as sort of the future of libraries. And it was an amazing building. And there were books everywhere, but it was very spacious. So the bookshelves were not... Actually, this is an interesting fact. Bookshelves used to be very close together. And that was a typical library. It would be these very narrow passageways between the stacks. And then when the Americans with Disability Acts were, Act was passed they had to be moved to accommodate the width of a wheelchair. So that's one of the times when libraries got rid of a fair number of books because they, had, they couldn't have as many shelves. But to answer your question, um, I think libraries, besides merely being a place where books exist, are physical buildings that have space that can be used in really interesting ways. And there is, a, I think, across the board, an, a, an effort to think we've got this wonderful edifice. What can we use this space for if we've got room for the books, but we also have all this space? So new library design will continue evolving, and I'm sure it'll contain more, more open space to be used for the public and as media perhaps moves more to being digitized, there may not be as much of a demand for just that raw bookshelf space. Okay. Thanks. I, um, I came a little late because I had to work, but so if you already addressed this, I apologize, but I wanted to share with you that my mother was a children's librarian and she worked for the Los Angeles Public Library. Oh, really? And she was actually there at the fire, which turned out to also be on her birthday. Oh. <laughs> so, and what was her name? Uh, Dorothy Helfeld. 
So I was basically wondering if you interviewed any, and she's not alive anymore, but I was wondering if you interviewed people, librarians who were actually oh, at yes. the library at yeah. the time. Well, there are still is, uh, there were still three librarians working currently who had been at the fire, the day of the fire. And then I also interviewed a lot of retired librarians because much of what I write about is their experience. Um, we had an experience as the public losing a library. They had an experience, and I suspect this was true of your mother, of being devastated. The city of Los Angeles brought in a grief counselor to work with the librarians. They were really traumatized. They mm -hmm. saw, you know, library collections don't just appear. They're, they're developed by the librarians and they get very engaged with their patrons. And for them, they had no idea when the library would ever reopen, if it would ever reopen, if the damaged books would be saved. There was a question of whether the arsonist was someone on staff. I mean, it was a terrible time. A number of uh, marriages ended during the aftermath of the fire. And the library didn't reopen for seven years. So they were moved into a very inadequate temporary space that they all hated. Um, some of them were transferred to other branches, but it was a really, it was a very difficult time for them and on, on every level. I, and I'm very glad I got to speak to a number of them. And I, I spent, a, I'm sure your mother mentioned Wyman Jones to you at some point. He was the city librarian at the oh, time good. of the fire and he's a real character and I wrote about him oh, quite a bit in the book. So I tried to really bring alive the the actual story of the fire itself and the immediate aftermath. Thanks. Because the only thing I remember is that they went to work in the warehouse for a long time. Right. And they would be working on the books and like they were like freezing them and they all some some Right. So I, I actually um, described it because it was an amazing the books were put into food um, all the food warehouse freezers. So they were stored frozen. The damaged books were frozen for about five or six years. And part of the reason they were frozen was if they began molding, they would be destroyed. And they, they, you can't salvage a molded book. But if you freeze them within 48 hours, you have a hope of thawing them out and repairing them. And actually, it was really interesting because McDonnell Douglas got involved in helping, and the Jet Propulsion Lab got involved in helping figure out how to thaw out these books. And ultimately, it was the largest uh, book recovery effort ever undertaken. And the good news is they actually managed to save a large number of those books. Oh, <laughs> well, this was actually one of the uh, great challenges of, of working on books, as I often do, peopled with characters who are ornery and... Um, different. And I tracked down Wyman Jones, the man who had been city librarian at the time of the fire, who was retired. 
Um, and I called him and introduced myself and said that I was doing a book about the library. And he, he was quite taken aback and said that he wasn't going to talk to me because he was writing his own book. It was called Confessions of a Belly Dancer. He never explained to me why it was called that. And he was very, really argumentative and, and very dismissive. He kept saying to me, what are you doing writing this book? You're not a librarian. I'm not going to talk to you. And then an hour later, he was still talking. <laughs> and this happened over and over again. And it got to a point where I had to think of an excuse before I called him because I knew that it would be one of these, like, I'm not talking to you. Why should I talk to you? You you don't know anything about anything, do you? And and then an hour later, he was still alternated between berating me and telling me about the library and about himself. It was a singular experience. <laughs> yes? Uh, hey, just curious. <clears throat> a lot of school districts around the country, sometimes you hear about different books being banned by a school district or something like that. In your exposure to libraries, as you looked into this story, did you find that they have to push back against that same impulse or are they kind of bastions of freedom, so to speak? Well, I think ideally they are bastions of freedom. And I think that most librarians really believe in that principle that everyone should have access to all information with with limits on what children can access and that sort of thing. But there have certainly been instances where librarians were leading the call to ban certain books. But in general, that has not been the case and that they've been the ones to resist a community's effort to ban books. Um, and they may make books less accessible than some books less accessible than others. But I do really think that librarians truly believe in that mission of making information accessible to everyone. Great. Thanks. Any more questions? No one else? Yes. Yes. It's a, a, a idiom and used in Senegal, when someone dies, you say his or her library has burned. Kind of wonderful expression and what ultimately, to me, sort of expressed everything about the book. Well, I just want to thank you again. This is so, so wonderful. I appreciate it. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.